Hello and welcome to the Vintage Podcast with me, Alex Clark. Now, spring has well and truly sprung and May sees the publication of a host of exciting new fiction here at Vintage. We are delighted to have three novelists joining us in the podcast studio, Booker Prize-winning Anne Enright and debut novelists Kirsty Logan and Vesna Goldsworthy. Between them, they take us to County Clare, Marley, New York, the Chelsea of the Russian oligarchs and a world that is almost entirely underwater. So let's get cracking. Ursula K. Le Guin has called Kirsty Logan's debut novel, The Gracekeepers, an enchanting magical tale and a highly original fantasy, and it's already being heralded as one of the fiction highlights of the year. Her writing has drawn comparisons to Angela Carter and Margaret Atwood, and in The Gracekeepers, she has created an original and magical world that The Independent has said will stay with you long after the final page. Thanks so much for joining us today, Kirsty. I should say it's the morning after the night before. It was your book launch last night, wasn't it? It was. I've had much coffee this morning. (laughs) Um, You're going to begin by reading us just the opening few words, aren't you? Just to set the scene of The Grace Keepers. Do you want to give us a feel of it? I would love to. So this is the very beginning of The Grace Keepers. The first Kalanish knew of the circus Excalibur was the striped silk of their sails against the grey sky. They approached her tiny island in convoy. The main boat, with its bobbing trail of canvas-covered coracles, following like ducklings, chained in an obedient line. Ships arrived a dozen a day in the archipelagos, and Kalanish knew that the circus folk would have to fight for their place on her island. Tomorrow the dock would be needed for a messenger boat or a crime crew or a medic. In a world that's almost entirely sea, placing your feet on land was a privilege that must be earned. As dusk fell, Kalanish loitered at the black shore, her slippered feet restless on the wooden slats. She watched as the circus crew spilled ashore. A red-faced barrel of a man, trailed by a bird-delicate boy, a trio of tattooed ladies, hair bright as petals, two gleaming horses left to gum at the seaweed. To a chorus of shouts, hoist, 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 the crew pulled ropes in unison, their limbs slick with salt water. Kalanish tugged at her white gloves as she watched the circus unfold. She saw how the boat's sails would become the striped ceiling of the big top, how the wide, flat deck would be the stage. With each billow of sail or tightening of ropes, she inched further off the dock and on to the shore. It was only when the sun dipped below the horizon that she felt the damp chill in her toes and saw how her slippers had darkened with seawater. Oh, she would be in trouble now. Thank you very much. Now, just tell us a bit about this strange world that you've created. It's a world underwater, isn't it? It is. The world is almost entirely flooded. So we just have these tiny, scattered archipelagos, just little islands, barely any land left at all. And is this, are we, are we 
given to think as the result of some kind of apocalyptic event or is it a sort of more free-floating than that? I'm quite happy to kind of leave that to the reader's imagination. Um, a few people have thought it's a post-apocalyptic thing. Some people have said maybe it's an alternate world. A few people have even asked if it's a kind of prehistory story. Is this a story of something that perhaps happened long before we were on the planet? I'm quite happy to leave that up to the reader. I feel that the characters maybe wouldn't know. I certainly don't really know quite why the world is the way that it is. I don't know why the coastlines are the shape that they are or why there are mountains in a particular place. I know geologists and geographers do, but I, as a normal person, don't know. So I'm not sure that the characters would know either. They All they can do is try and live in the world rather than constantly think back to the way it came to be the way it is. So just tell us about these two characters and how they come to cross one another's path. Path's not quite the right word in a watery world, is it, anyway? They're, uh, they're shipping lanes, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> um, so North is our circus performer. She is a bear girl, so she does a dance with her beloved bear who is only just tame. He's kind of borderline tame, so there's always the slight danger that he will revert to his wild nature. And as a dampling, somebody who lives at sea, she has to travel between these scattered islands and do her performance in order to try and get a little bit of food and shelter for her circus crew for the night. And then because the world is is almost entirely sea, when somebody dies, they can't be buried, so they instead are sunk down into the sea. And above them is hung a little cage, which has got a bird in it. And the bird is known as a grace. So when the grace dies, it means that the, the person's family can stop mourning for them. And Kalanish, our other main character, is what's known as a grace keeper, who is a person who tends these watery graves and the, these dying birds. So it's a very solitary existence in comparison to North's very cramped, boisterous, noisy circus existence. So they're two very different women, and when they meet they realise that they have more of a connection than you might expect. Well, in the way that you you explain that, it almost sounds like it's life v death, in a way, to kind of a, a, a sort of exuberant existence to do with entertaining and noise and light and colour and this rather sad existence of, of being a gracekeeper. Yeah, there, there's a real contrast between their two worlds. And I think the, the more I think about it, the more I realise the reason I've done that is partly because that is really the two parts of my personality and I feel a lot of people's personalities. We all have this very introverted, inward-looking side to ourselves where we have our sadnesses and we have our losses and we think of the bad things that have happened. But then we also have this more exuberant, friendly part of ourselves where we like to go out and have fun and go to circuses and see bands and do exciting things. And I think everybody is a conflict in that way. Everybody has those two sides of themselves, so perhaps in the two characters that's come through. And also, to me, living in Scotland, it's a country of real conflicts and differences. So I live in Glasgow. It's a very busy city. There's always bands playing, different cafes opening. It's music playing, bright lights. There's always exciting things happening. But then travel for half an hour and you're at the sea, it's calm, it's beautiful, sparse, no people around. So it's a real place of contrasts, and that's what I love about it. Just tell us a bit about how this book 
started. I mean, one of the things that listening to you immediately occurs to me is that you began with creating your own vocabulary, damplings, gracekeepers. I mean, that sounds immense fun. What were the sort of beginnings of the project for you? I love that. I love playing with language and making up little words and things like that. It's really good fun to me. The funny thing about the word gracekeeper, it actually came about many years ago with a typo. So I was writing the word graveyard and I mistyped it and typed graceyard and when I went to change it, I thought, oh, I quite like that. And I didn't really know what to do with it. I just kind of wrote it down in my notebook and went on about what I was doing. But it stayed with me that I thought, I like this term, graceyard. So obviously years later, when I, I got this idea for this book, I came back to that. But the other names, I don't know. I just liked them. They just popped into my head one day. <laughs> when you're writing a kind of imaginary world like this, I mean, one thing that does strike me is that there must be points at which you think oh my goodness, this is all so far-fetched and ridiculous, or so only me creating it. You've got no real reference points, as it were. So you've got to have a tremendous kind of belief to keep going on sort of populating it and describing it and extending it. Was that difficult? I love it. I mean, creating imaginary worlds is my favourite thing to do. Uh, my mum would tell you when I was a kid, my favourite game to play was called Villages, where I would take all my toys and lay them all out on the floor and there would be, I would make a village basically. So there would be, I had a little set of wooden clogs that my dad had brought me back from Holland. So that was a house. And then I had a Sylvanian family's house and I had various things that became houses. And I would be almost like a narrator or an estate agent showing somebody around and telling the stories of all the people that lived in all the different houses, which now that I think about it is basically being a writer. So it's funny, <laughs> even as a child, I was very much into making up these worlds and making up these stories but I was told once to just write the book that you want to read and I love very vivid bold imaginative books so yes it is a very surreal and outlandish world but it's the type of world that I want to read and really that's why I wrote it. Your first book was a collection of short stories The Rental Heart um, so this is quite a, a big change I suppose in, in a sort of canvas how has it felt to you? It's been really fun. Um, th there was a short story in The Rental Heart called The Gracekeeper, and to my mind, it was a complete story. I just wrote the story and it was finished, and I, you know, stepped away. But something about it just kept playing on my mind. So uh, when I wrote the short story, I didn't intend to make it a novel, but there was just something that felt a little bit unsaid about it, and I wanted to come back and explore it further. I do feel like it's a bit of a short story writer's novel because we get the voices of all the different characters so we have North and Callanish are the main characters and we return to them throughout the narrative so we, we constantly have their threads running through but all the different circus characters get their own chapter and get their own point of view and I did want each one to stand alone as a story so each character's narrative slightly undermines the one that's come before because everybody has their own version of events everybody has their own opinion of what's happening so it's although it is a, a novel and a fully fledged story hopefully each piece stands alone as its own little mini story as well now it's made quite a splash sorry terrible <laughs> pun um already um i mean these comparisons with writers like um, angela carter and margaret atwood and you know it, in the sort of real world um Simon Mayo has chosen it for his book club on radio too. I mean, it's been really successful. How does it feel? 
it's, daunting, it's, lovely. It, it is. It's really humbling, and I, I feel really honoured. You know, when you write a book, it's just you sitting in a room by yourself for a year, and as you say, you don't know if anybody's going to like this book. You don't know if anyone's ever going to read it, really. So, it, it was a real joy for me to just sit and spend time with these characters and spend time in this world and it's just really exciting that now other people are coming into this world that I've made I find it really exciting that I I can create something and then other people can come into it and, and enjoy it as well thanks very much for joining us today thank you Vesna Goldsworthy's debut novel Gorski interweaves the captivating tale of an oligarch in love with a bittersweet satire of contemporary London and all its excesses. It's a modern reimagining of The Great Gatsby, which Eva Hoffman has called entertaining and poignant, ironic and serious. Gorski is both a literary homage and the work of a highly original imagination, a jeu d'esprit with a heart and mind. Thank you so much for joining us today, Vesna. I think you're going to start by reading us a little bit from the beginning of the book. Yes, the very opening scene. It was a piece of business that comes along once in a lifetime, if you're lucky. First, there was a year of glamorous parties, an unexpected, undeserved year, unlike anything I had ever experienced. Then it all suddenly stopped, and I had to return to what I was before, to a different language and a different place. Gorski changed my life. I remember his first visit to the shop. You couldn't fail to notice him, even in a city like London, in which millions are bent on attracting attention. People walk around with exhibitionist swagger, as though starring in their own YouTube clip. He was quietly remarkable. Foreign, expensive, somehow still, even when he moved, his volume turned down permanently. His melancholy muzzle was equine and aristocratic, and his tailored worsteds so ripely English that at first I thought he could only be Prussian. The Russians looked tougher, beefier and coarser, even when they were undeniably handsome. I don't mean Russians in general, of course, but the Russians in this handful of London's richest postcodes, that self-selected set of men belonging to the generation which in the West would have been called baby boomers. In Russia, their lives had spun a full circle. They grew up in shared apartments, made billions in crude oil, gas, or sophisticated scams, spent it on houses, horses, whores, and occasionally hired killers, and finally returned to playing cards with each other, just as they did in the bad old communist days, only now surrounded by squads of bodyguards. Thank you very much. I mean, what I found so striking about this book straight away is that it's got these kind of rather sort of old forms in it. It's the retelling of of a novel, The Great Gatsby. It's also got this idea of a young man asked to do something by a wealthy man, a task he doesn't really understand why. And yet here is this incredibly modern right now sort of feeling for those of us who live in London and are watching it change around us. It's right there in, in modern 
um, contemporary, excessively wealthy London? Just tell us a bit about it's that. It's a fantastic question because it actually nails precisely what I was aiming to do. At heart, I'm a romantic, uh, and I love those old-fashioned love stories, Onegin, Anna Karenina, and in this case, Le Grand Monde, almost as much as The Great Gatsby. But I wanted within that frame of a romantic story to tell something that is actually very much a satire and a kind of love-hate story about London. I have been living in this town for about 30 years, and I watched it change from what now seems almost a quiet and quaint town into this huge, bustling, annoying and wonderful place. And so the book is tugging in those two directions, absolutely. How did you begin to think of the sort of framework for it? I mean, it is set kind of in uh, an old-fashioned bookshop, isn't it? Mm. And it has as its narrator uh, this exile figure, this person who's ended up here almost by accident. Mm. It is uh, the, the, the set pieces or the images. I'm a poet, and so those were the... the, the um, the pieces that came to my mind, first of all, which is Gorski standing in a particular place with bodyguards and dogs tugging on their leashes, uh, an idea of a party somewhere in Belgravia. And I actually saw a party like that, an 18th century party with people in powdered wigs and silk coats coming out of expensive cars, going into a wonderful house, and all speaking Russian. So it's a kind of mixture of real memories and these kind of poetic images. But then I also wanted uh, a cracking plot. Um, and um, I had this kind of idea that somehow I could join up uh, a very poetic storytelling with a fast-moving story, which was a, a really tall order. And in a way, this is why I wanted uh, or or went for a pre-existing story, think, thinking I could modernize it, because otherwise it was just too daunting. It's a, it's a tiny uh, or, or a short book, but a, an immensely ambitious one. Tell us a bit about your two main characters, about Gorski and about our narrator, whom Gorski asks to undertake this task for him. He asks him to create the best library in the world, more or less. <laughs> Nicola, or Nicola, Nicholas Nick, he appears with all those names, as most of us immigrants have these sort of variants, more or less pronounceable of our names, is, uh, is a refugee. And he's someone who escaped to London from the Balkans. But he's a very bookish chap. He has a PhD, a useless PhD in English literature. And he more or less drifts. He's a passive, slightly lazy, keen reader, keen observer. He's as poor as a church mouse, uh, but superior with it all. Uh, Gorski, on the other hand, is a man of action, a man of untold billions. And they sort of complement each other. They complement each other both in their nationality, because Nikola is Serbian, Gorski is Russian. Nikola knows London very well. Nick, should I call him Nick for, for ease? Nick knows London very well. Uh, he's an insider, more or less, after those uh, after many years. He has a lot of girlfriends in London, etc. Whereas Gorski, you would think, would be man of the world. But he's in some ways actually otherworldly. And he's also very nostalgic about Russia. So um, paradoxically, although Gorski owns half of uh, Chelsea, um, he is more alienated and more lonely, whereas Nick, who is absolutely poor, is kind of part of the streets of this city. So uh, I loved creating that. 
There is this wonderful fantasy element in it, which of course appeals to everybody who loves to read books. Um, Gorski writes Nick a check for I think it's two hundred and fifty thousand pounds just to sort of get him started, and says, "Go and go and find the books, but I must see the receipt for everything, even the cheapest paperback." Um, and it's this wonderful moment where you just think, oh, "If I had two hundred and fifty thousand pounds to go and buy books." What would I buy? Was there just a kind of tremendous Indeed. element of play in that? It's, a, it's a, you know, some people would think that when I was writing this book about private planes and uh, private islands and uh, amazing parties, that that was my wish fulfillment. On the contrary, <laughs> the person I envy most in that novel is Nick. And if I, if I could swap with anyone, I'd probably swap with him. And the, and the reason is that he has, from my point of view, everything I would ever like, which is a brief to buy his favorite books. Gorski says, buy whatever you like, so long as it fits together. This is like a kind of life ri- library, a portrait of a man through the books he owns. And Nick uses all his knowledge of literary history, which is my knowledge, to create this library uh, suitable for a man like Gorski. So he's, he's having real fun with that. And in fact, a lot of readers who are... The, the, the uh, references to Gatsby are pretty obvious, but a lot of readers who know something about Russian literature would notice a kind of secret pattern there because I actually put, uh, amongst uh, Nick's acquisitions, there are quite a lot of books that are to do with ki- with the kind of romantic idea of a superf- superfluous, lonely man, yes? So the, the kind of portrait of Gorski actually emerges through, you know, the sort of the sort of the Byronic hero. The the portrait of Gorski actually emerges through that. So that was my secret little play. I had really I had a lot of fun with that. Can I ask you a little bit about writing in what is not your first language? I think English is your Third, Third language. language, yes. Um, and this is not your your first book. You, you've written a memoir, Chernobyl Strawberries. You've written poetry. Just just tell us a little bit about the business of writing, and I suppose also reading. Not in your first language. It's uh, um, it's an interesting thing because when you look at uh, the four books that I've published so far, in fact, the genre pattern will tell you something about language acquisition. I came to this country. With people normally imagine that uh, when you're writing in your third language that you're some kind of very wealthy person, a bit like Nabokov, who had a nanny and English was more or less natural from, from, from childhood. But in fact, I, was, uh, I, I studied English pretty much as you would uh, study any foreign language at school three times a week. So it was good enough to order something in a pub, but certainly not good enough to write in it when I came to this country. Uh, first of all, I wrote criticism. Uh, because I, uh, I, I'm by background a literary critic. So my first book was a cultural study. Then I wrote a memoir in very specific circumstances, then poetry, and finally a novel. And that is really, it took about 20 years to produce all of those as my English became better and better. Uh, a different answer to this question could also be that I chose a na- narrator who is Serbian in order to be comfortable in that register. I'm, you know, I'm very happy speaking English, but I'm also aware that for me, uh, it is, I sometimes compare it to a very fast new car. You know, you drive really with full self-confidence, but then you take a sudden corner and you find that you're way out there where you shouldn't be, you know, halfway through the road. And I, when I translate into Serbian, I also notice, uh, as I do, I've just translated Gorski into Serbian, I notice that I have many more inhibitions in Serbian. 
um, which is also interesting. That's interesting. <laughs> I, I mean, I got, that's absolutely. Can I explain? Yes, please. Can that's I fascinating. When I was uh, when I was growing up in uh, uh, in Belgrade, uh, when I when I uh, started learning English, I learned to swear and curse in English. When I had a, as I now have a 15-year-old boy. I had to unlearn that habit. So uh, if I'm driving and someone crosses, since I'm using these driving metaphors, and some is, someone crosses ahead of me, I'll ha- I have to say duck. Um, uh, and similarly, when I'm writing, I, I, you know, I go with the narrative voice. But then I find that inhibitions about describing lovemaking or using the kind of full-blooded words, etc., suddenly kick in in Serbian because I sort of suddenly realize that in in my mother tongue, things are somehow much more closely related to their full bodiness. You know, um, I think it was Auden who somewhere said, a child sees a moon and he thinks the word is the thing when they learn the words. And that still operates like that. So I actually love writing in English for that reason, because on the whole, inhibitions are not very good for writers. That's so interesting. <laughs> you mean, essentially, you're sort of liberated yes, yes, not yes, writing yes. in your the first whole, language. The whole baggage, your parents sitting on your shoulder, your school friends, is suddenly kind of lifted and you write whatever you want to write. It's fully full freedom. (laughs) Well, there is full freedom in this book. It's a really exuberant, funny, but profound book at the same time. Um, Are you working on another novel? Have you now decided that actually... English works for you as a novelist. <laughs> I, 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 it took me longer to translate translate it into Serbian almost than to write it in English. You lose that kind of facility. So I, I think I can only write in English at the moment. But uh, I'm trying to write another novel. I had before I wrote Gorski, which came almost out of nowhere. I'd started uh, a book, strange enough, which also has Russian themes. And I think I'm now going back to it. We look forward to it. Thank Thank you you so so much for coming to talk to us. Thank you. I'm absolutely delighted to be able to welcome to the podcast studio Anne Enright. Anne, you're in the middle of your tour for your new book, The Green Road, aren't you? I'm just at the beginning of it, indeed. Yeah. Are, are you all over the place? Are you going everywhere? Um, I am. I'm off to the States after this and um, uh, Canada. Yeah, I'm all over the place. Um, the Green Road is a really fabulous novel. It's your sixth. Um, you, in fact, published your first novel 20 years ago, I think, this year, didn't you? I don't really count. It's a bit like marriage. I think that if you're counting, then that that is a sign that, <laughs> that maybe you want to be doing something else. I think it is my ninth book. There, can, there were kind of half books in there as well. There are short stories. There's yeah. your book about motherhood. Mm-hmm. Um, and an anthology that I put out of other people's work. And so, yeah, it's my ninth self-penned book. And uh, yeah. Let's talk about it. The Green Road is a very distinct thing, isn't it? It's not just a sort of a metaphor. It's a real road. Just tell us where it is and what it is. This is a, the Green Road is a real road in the Burren in County Clare, which is one of the most iconic, beautiful uh, parts of Ireland. It's, um, you can see the cliffs of Moher. You can see Galway Bay and the Aran Islands. So it's a real road. It's green because it's not paved. Um, and it goes over the limestone uplands of the Burren. And actually, I started this book... When we were staying down in County Clare and I used to go up on this road for my walk every day and it took me 
quite a while to realise that I that this was where the book was going to be, that whatever feelings I was carrying up the road needed to be on the road. And I was going to end with this real place. Now, the fact that you you walked up on that road every day is kind of significant when you come to the novel, isn't it? Because the the mother in the novel also takes a walk on the green road uh, every day. And she is a sort of, in a way, central, but also slightly distant figure in the book. The book is really the story of her children, of her four children, told in kind of various different points of their lives. Yeah, I mean, the book is about leaving and returning. And the first thing you leave, of course, is the mother. So Rosaline as is a difficult mother to leave. She doesn't want anyone to leave. She is permanently sort of feeling a little abandoned herself, actually. Um, she's a fragile, sort of wonderful, very a, a charming person. But as she gets older, the charm becomes a bit more brittle um, and the difficulty becomes more evident. Um, and she goes for her walk every day um, uh, uh, and I, I, what I liked about the green road was the idea of being a tiny figure in a landscape that suddenly your humanity becomes very apparent to you. You are, are that small thing, which is a human being, and you're on a planet. The book is very involved in the idea of elsewhere, what it is to go elsewhere. And the green road is on the edge of Ireland and it's just just the next next door to America. And you get the feeling that the tide of emigration, you know, washed over that that coast uh, very strongly. So you get the the tug of elsewhere constantly and the nostalgia for home. It seems like a very good place to talk about those things. What struck me forcefully about it in, in that sense was that it's also a modern story of, of going away and returning because, as you say, the sort of emigration of the past, people might leave Ireland and never return to it. Um, but in... These instances, um, these four children, three of them do go to various different places. But they are, of course, able to return. And it seemed to me the book was kind of equivocal about how much that was a good thing. Yeah, I mean, exile isn't what it used to be. We don't so much emigrate as commute. Uh, the, 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 the house where I was, the guy who rented it to us was off in Africa doing business. And he was going to come home. And he was in Egypt and Nigeria. And it just seemed quite natural. I was actually writing a chapter set in Africa, an Irish guy in Africa, in this guy's house while he was exactly there. Uh, well, not exactly there. Africa is a very varied and big place. But where, where, and, and it just seemed kind of natural that that's one of the places Irish people go. They're great travellers. Um, and, and they feel that they're going to come back to a place that's the same as it was before. And there's this fierce nostalgia for what, what, what has been left behind. The sense that Ireland in, is in some way an innocent and wild space. But in fact, Ireland is just like anywhere else. People are getting on with their lives and it's changing. And, you know, money comes, money goes, things happen. Um, and uh, so that's the Ireland I live in myself. That's the Ireland I use on the page. Um, as well as having in the background this idealised kind of feeling about Ireland. Ireland's involvement with its own past, I guess, is, is sort of part of part of the book. I suppose it is, yeah. I mean, the, the, the book um, and the taboos of the past, uh, the taboos of the... of It starts in the 1980s, and when I was writing it, I realised, God almighty, Ireland in the 1980s didn't know where it was going. And it is very like being a child, and you have no idea what your adult experience is going to be. It's just so beyond imaginings, beyond your reach. And Ireland in the 1980s, the Pope came and the Pope left, and everybody got very excited and very Catholic for, like, two months. 
not realising that Catholicism was basically in crisis and the congregation was going to leave and trickle away over the next 20 years and that that euphoria was in fact denial. And actually, though it's not really in the book, the euphoria of the boom was actually denial. And sometimes in my own life, I feel that I'm at my happiest when I don't know what what's going to hit the fan. <laughs> then I'm going, la, 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 everything's great. At precisely the moment where I should be worrying about something, that that denial is kind of interesting. Um, so my characters, I've, I've no problem working with contemporary characters. I don't see why anyone should have a problem working with contemporary characters. I think people are pretty much people, uh, Irish or, or, or otherwise. And what you're looking for are, are big stories that small people can go through. And one of the big stories here with all of these children in various ways is the sort of push and pull of the relationship with their mother, isn't it? Yeah, um, very much so. It, I, I say they, they come back bringing their inner child and find their outer mother. But in fact, Rosalind's a bit of a child herself. She never really does grow up. And I, I've had various different mothers in my books. Rosalind is a very different mother from Gina's mother in The Forgotten Walls or, or Veronica's mother in, in, in The Gathering. But the problem of the mother is, is, is constant. Uh, there's no such thing, I think, as an easy mother that we're always separating from the mother one way or the other. And that separation isn't a smooth process. I mean, that tug of love and of, of leaving is a constant that we have with our mothers. It's also very difficult to put mothers into fiction. Um, I kind of feel that we make up stories because almost that children start making stories up once the mother leaves the room. And then when the mother's there, they don't need stories. <laughs> You mentioned your two previous novels, The Forgotten Waltz and The Gathering. The Gathering, of course, won the Booker Prize in 2007. I wonder to what extent it um, makes any sense to you to have them described as a sort of trilogy, as a kind of suite of novels in some way. Well, The Forgotten Waltz and The Gathering were like two, faced each other for sure. They were kind of bookends on, on to me, the problem, the writer's problem is always... The reader reads for psychology endlessly. And to me, the psychology is sometimes incidental, as it was. The family in the gathering was just there. I didn't have to make it up or anything. <laughs> um, I, I, but my problem in those two books is to have a first-person narrator and how to break out of the, the circle of the self, the solipsism of that point of view. And I'm also very keen on having a first-person point of view because I'm interested in in, in in the fact that we can't know everything. I'm interested in how limited our perspective is um, and how that breaks down when we start realising things. Anyway, so this, The Green Road, um, I, I gave each sibling a very strong standalone section of their own so that we have their four points of view that they can each own the novel. You might feel it's like fragmentation, but in, and it is. It's, it's, it's about being separate from each other. It's about being adult, having different experiences. But that separation doesn't last. They come together at the end. They're sort of enclosed in their own worldviews, and we know them very well by the time they come back. But that they cannot separate entirely from one another. Yeah, I mean, the real problem that interested me in in the green road was how we break out of the circle of self to empathise or to have compassion for others. And each of the siblings faces a kind of crisis of compassion where they're asked, 
where, they, where they're asked to make a reach and they either do or they fail, tiny or large. And those crises of compassion come about partly because they realise they're they realise things about mortality. I mean, they're, they're, it's perhaps the same two sides of the same coin. Um, and so Rosaline endlessly can't break out of her self-absorption. Um, and that, to me, was the problem. That was the problem they all had to deal with, how they were how they were going to fill the gap or break out of their own self-absorption, how they were to become proper human beings. I mean, I think becoming a proper human being is 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 a is a good plan. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not always easy. Just, just in terms of how that um, solving that problem translates to your task as a novelist in terms of style, when you're telling a story from lots of different points of view, how does that affect the way that you're you approach writing each character, each section of the book? I think you enter very, I was going to say strongly, deeply. They all sound too penetrative. You you exist inside your character or let them exist inside you for a very long time. And you, you, you try and do right by them in some way. Um, and you, 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 you try and be with them in some way. I, I tend to kind of tend my characters. They're, they're, they're good company or bad company sometimes. <laughs> and I have them somehow in my care. So I want to get the moment where, where something becomes apparent to them or, or, or distantly apparent. I want to get that down on the page. Can I just finish by asking you about something in the, in the real world, not the fictional world that's happened to you? You've recently become the first ever uh, laureate for fiction in Ireland. And I wonder what kind of impact that had on you, what, how it felt to, to be part of this, this great tradition of writing, but in a sort of formal way. It felt good, I have to say. It's like no one really knows how to describe a writer, but if you have the label laureate, if you are the title laureate, then they, they know how to describe you for three years and that makes it a lot easier. It's uh, a great honour and uh, it's also a job. I'll, I'll be teaching and giving lectures and working on my own stuff, I hope, um, and putting together some events. But I think the job is to represent or be the face of Irish fiction for three years until the next person takes over. Um, and that certainly it works really well in Ireland, that people like a slightly formal aspect um, and respond very well to it because we're very proud of our tradition. We have endless problems with our individual writers. The readers do. They have opinions this way, that way or the other. Um, so to to be outside the reach of opinion for, you know, the five or ten minutes making a speech to welcome people or whatever, they like they like that symbolism. And thank you very much. We wish you the best of your luck with your job, but more to the point, best of, of luck with, with all the new books that you're going to write. Um, thank you very much for coming and talking to us about The Green Room. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Vintage Books podcast and thanks to my guests Anne Enright, Kirsty Logan and Vesna Goldsworthy. If you've missed any episodes of the Vintage Podcast and would like to listen again, you can find us on our website www.vintage-books.co.uk and you can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or follow us on SoundCloud. We'd love to know what you think, so if you have two minutes, please give us a rating or leave a comment. Until next month, goodbye. <laughs>